Crime One and Chaos contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Get on our level, Chaos Kids. I'm Naomi. <laughs> I'm Amber. And this is Crime Wine and Chaos. Hi, What's sister. Our oh, am I there? Can I be there? Hi. Hi. You're oh, you're always there. You're always I there. I don't know, sister. I don't know about today. <laughs> I don't know what level this is, but oof. oh, one of the nine levels of Dante's Hell. I don't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I warped like and I, I, I'm in the da na 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 na. I'm in there. Yeah. <laughs> mm hmm. Oh. Well, what's going on? Oh, well, let's see. We had our company holiday party today and we do an ugly Christmas sweater contest. And I did a full on ugly Christmas ensemble. I got fucking okay. third place, third place. And I've got some bones to pick with that. You feel like you should have gotten first. No, I mean, first place was pretty great, but <laughs> just mad that somebody thought of something better. Um, so, you know, there was that. That was the highlight of my day. What about you? Oh, it's been a weird day. And also my dryer broke. Ew. <laughs> no. And you know, you always find out that the dryer or the washer doesn't work anymore after there's a whole like load of wet clothes. You know what I mean? Which I mean, yeah. it's fine. I, I hang dry a lot of my clothes all the time anyway, but like not all of the load was going to be hung to dry. But now, now it is. <laughs> now oh, it is. Mr. My condolences. <laughs> Yeah, mm. so yeah, yeah, my, it's annoying. It's annoying. I mean, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It was just like one you? of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will. I will be fine. I will be fine. I would be so fucked if somebody just like plopped me in the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> I dishwasher broke for like three days last month, and I was like, I'm basically fucking Amish right now. Oh my god, sister! Like, <laughs> we grew up without a dishwasher. We were the dishwashers. I know. I was like, what are we doing? I can't do this. This needs to be fixed now. Wow, <laughs> sis. <laughs> I know. I know. You I know. know, you know, when civilization inevitably collapses at the end of, you know, capitalism, you will be one of the ones who doesn't make it. It's true. It's true. <laughs> we talked about this at the party. Remember we had that whole conversation at the party that one when day? everybody chimed in in unison that Amber would be the first to go. Who like who would you guys eat first or something? No, it was like who did we think wouldn't make it? And everybody agreed it was you. Everybody agreed it would be me. It you was know what? Unanimous. It, that's rough. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. Marissa said she'd go out hunting and I believe her. No, I totally. Marissa would absolutely bring back food. I feel like I would make <laughs> it fairly long. I, I've got like the, I'm scrappy, you know, I'm, I'm scrappy. I'm gritty. Mm -hmm. I've seen not some me. shit. <laughs> I would just lay down and die. I'd be like, fuck it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, what are you drinking? Thank you for asking. Um, I'm still polishing off that same thing. I think I was drinking last time, the Colossal Red, the Caso Santos Lima. It's the oh, last yes. little bit. Be Lima by, by way of Kirkland's signature, of course. Correct. Yes. You've got right. a good memory, sister. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Shit. Sometimes it depends on what it is. I don't remember the important things. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you remember exactly the wine, even though you don't drink wine. That's right. That's that'll that'll come in handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll come in handy, especially when we're when we're trying to make it after the fall of civilization. Uh, mm. Sister, do you yes. have a crime for me today? I sure do. Uh, mm. this hey, is... this is the. This is the Christmas Eve episode, isn't it? That is correct. <gasps> you mm. have Christmas crime for me? I do, and it's terrible. Oh, Merry fucking Christmas, you guys. Mm-hmm. You filthy animals. Okay. Are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, great. So um, it is December 19th, 2007. Right outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, is a quiet suburb along the Mississippi River called St. Paul Park. Okay. <laughs> I never I'm know. Following along. I'm okay. following along so far. Okay, so far, so good. Wow. Whew, it's going to be a long night. Okay, so it's pleasant <laughs> and pretty, and there's not a lot going on there. But Christmas is a big deal in their community. They do like a... You know, everybody decks out. There's like a little Santa comes and like the town square. It's a whole thing, right? Okay. I got a tangent real quick. You know, I was at (laughs) Bellevue Square Mall the other day. Why did you do that to yourself? Because somebody whose company I enjoy said, meet me at this place. And I said, sure, I'll meet you at that place in Bellevue. And it wasn't until I was like looking it up on my phone and leaving my house that I realized that I was going straight into the, like the heart of the empire in the middle of Christmas season. And I sat in, you know, two or three city blocks of traffic just to get into the Bellevue square mall fucking parking garage. And their Christmas parade was happening in downtown Bellevue. Uh Mm -hmm. Sister, sister. I, Snowflake Lane is the spawn of Satan. The city built around a mall. You know what I mean? I just. It's. And yeah, that, it's, place, that place has changed drastically since we were kids. Mm-hmm. It is. It's like its own city within the city. It is insane. Yeah, it's. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. So we ate and we left as quickly as possible because neither one of us was expecting that level of. That was insanity. And if that didn't like cure any nostalgia one might have left as an adult for Christmas, that will do it. That yeah, will do it. do it. That'll <laughs> kick the Christmas right out of you real quick. Right? Get yourself caught up in Snowflake Lane on accident. No, oh, thank fuck. you. Anyway, I'm sorry. I I, no. I had to, I forgot to tell you about that. No, thank you for that. You guys, don't do it. Just don't. don't do Just it. don't go to Bellevue the entire month of December. I mean, don't no. go to Bellevue at all if you can help it, but definitely not in December. Just don't. Well, uh, you'll be happy to know that I have the pleasure of going to Bellevue twice a week for band practice. So, oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, so anyway, they're going uh, all out for Christmas. Yep, nineteen-year-old Christine Larson was excited to spend Christmas with her twenty-two-month-old son Darian. He is so cute. Such a good age for Christmas. Her parents, Daniel and Deb Tilson, said that as soon as Christine had Darian, he became her entire world. 
Mom Deb said that Christine always embraced life and she brought zest into the room when she walked in. Oh, I love a zesty one. Uh, a zesty one, a little spitfire. And Darian was no different. Little apple falling right from the tree. Huh? Uh, huh? He's a little spitfire too. Love it. Christine was the youngest of four and very much the youngest by eight years. And oh, she wow. was everybody's baby in the family. Yeah, that's like a late in the marriage oopsie daisy. I don't know. Love mm-hmm. it though. Yeah, she was everyone's baby. She was a little spark who lit up everybody's lives. She was gregarious and a caregiver. So Darian's dad is 21-year-old Zachary Matthews. He's very active in Darian and Christine's life. Zachary and Christine lived with Christine's parents throughout her pregnancy. And Deb and Daniel said they loved Zachary like a son. Mm Mm-hmm. So Christmas was also a big deal in their home. And one of the many traditions was getting together and baking Christmas cookies. I mean, I love a Christmas cookie baking sesh. I mean, that's, that's, I'm into that. That's where it's at. Yeah. One thing about Christmas I can get behind is the baking of the cookies. Mm -hmm. Same Z's, same Z's. Mm -hmm. So Christine's favorite to make every year was what the family called Merry Christ mice. They were like little mouse-shaped cookies made out of candy. Oh, my God. That's adorable. Okay. Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a few days before Christmas 2007. Deb and Christine have plans to get together and do the Christmas cookies. They're going to have dinner together and then bake afterwards. So Deb gets all of the ingredients ready. But as 6.30 rolls around and then 7 o'clock, she's getting concerned because Christine still wasn't there. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. So that same night, about 30 minutes away in Minneapolis, a woman came home and found a car in her driveway that was on fire. Shit. Mm-hmm. In her Some own driveway. random car? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome a call- home. No shit, right? Spooky. A call comes in from someone in the neighborhood reporting that there is a car on fire. And the caller says, I have a fire extinguisher. I'll try and go put it out. But as the neighbors are trying to put out the car fire, they make a horrible fucking discovery in the backseat. No. Yeah. So a few minutes later, the same neighbor called 911 again. He explains that he just called about the car fire and he says there is a dead person inside the car. Oh, God. Mm. Did you ever watch the, like, I think it was like a five-part series on Oxygen about her last name escapes me now, Jessica from Mississippi. Is she, she the was one killed that came in a... walking out of the yes. woods on fire. Yeah, that's that the one's case one that... of the ones that haunts me too. It haunts me too. They never uh. solved it, right? No, they they ha- got a conviction, but there's a lot of speculation that they have the wrong person. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I just the the fire is just it's so scary. So police and fire respond onto the scene and they're able to pull the person from the car and lay her on the ground. The victim is a female in what appears to be her early 20s and she was partially burned. She had ligature marks around her neck that was consistent with a thin rope and they could see petechial hemorrhaging in both of her eyes. She also had no coat and no shoes on, which is unusual in December in Minnesota. No and so shit. Po- yeah. P- 
police believe that she was killed somewhere inside, likely, and then placed in the car. Right. So police, they speak with the neighbors and nobody saw anything. And they had no idea whose car this was or why it was in their driveway. That's awful to do to... So, to do this, yes. Just a random person, like, here's the... Well, yeah. Like, why someone's driveway? You know? know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. So detectives are able to determine that the car was left there sometime between 7.30 and 8. And they know this because the homeowner had left and there was no car there. And she returned 30 minutes later and it was there. Right. So investigators also found a partially burned phone book in the car, which they believed was used as an accelerant. And also inside the car is a car seat but they don't see a child. Okay. So they find a purse inside the car. And when they check the driver's license, the picture does match that with Christine Larson. Of course. Yeah. It gives an address in St. Paul park. And also inside of her purse is a picture of Darian. (sighs) So meanwhile, Deb and Daniel decide to call it a night around 10 o'clock. And they aren't too concerned that Christine didn't come home. And Daniel, her dad, is like, yeah, I remember being 19 once. You know, like bake cookies with my mom or go do something cooler. And so the couple gets in bed and they're watching the news when they see that a car has been found on fire in Minneapolis with a deceased body of a young woman. And Daniel even turned to Deb and said, sucks to be that family. Oh, I know. Yeah. So police learn that a gold pickup truck had been reported stolen in the same area right after they received the call about the burning car. And so they decide to follow that lead, thinking that whoever dumped the car had stolen the truck. So they put out a bolo for the truck and then detectives head to the address in St. Paul listed on Christine's driver's license. Is it her parents' address? Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Yep. It's about 3 a.m. when Deb and Daniel are woken by a knock on their door. And that's when they get the devastating news that the young woman in the car fire was Christine. Oh, my God. I can't. I can't. I, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's the worst case scenario. No. A oh. knock or a phone call at that hour, nothing good is happening. Nope. Nothing good is happening. No. Nope. fucking terrible. So police are hoping that Danielle and Deb can tell them where the little boy is. So Deb called Zachary while the police were sitting there and found out that Darian was with him and that he was fine. And Zachary says that he and Christine had plans to go Christmas shopping for Darian that afternoon and that Christine never showed up. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So that is when Deb tells Zachary that Christine has died. She said that Zachary started wailing and asking why and who had done this to her. So Deb makes arrangements for Zachary and Darian to come and stay with them before getting off the phone so she can continue to, you know, provide information to the detectives. Okay. Does he pull up in a gold pickup truck? No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're here. No, no. (laughs) God. 
Uh, so Christine had just finished school and was looking for a new job. She didn't use drugs or drink and her entire life was centered around Darian. Deb tells them that Zachary and Christine were no longer a couple, but Zachary was still considered part of the family. They had lived together for a short period after Darian was born, but Christine had decided to end the relationship and move back in with her parents. Deb said that what Christine had told her was that Zachary wasn't ready to grow up and be a family man. He wanted to have parties and flirt with other women. And that was not, not the vibe for her. So she was like, yeah, I'm taking Darian and I'm going back to my parents' house. I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. So Zachary had moved on and had his own place in St. Paul and Christine had also moved on. And it seemed like the two had a healthy co-parenting relationship. Deb says that the last time she saw Christine was at 1.30 that afternoon. She was giving a friend a ride and dropping her off at the convenience store close by and then heading to pick up Darian for the Christmas shopping, Zachary and Darian for the Christmas shopping. Right. So police are able to get CCTV footage from the convenience store and they see her drop her friend off. Then she goes inside the store and makes a purchase and she's like smiling and laughing and having a conversation with the clerk, which is like so sad, you know? Yeah. (sighs) Then she gets back in her car and leaves and she makes a left turn towards St. Paul and it was around 2.15 PM. Then detectives get a call that that stolen pickup has been found. It was abandoned and empty. So police had it impounded and placed into the forensics garage to be dusted for fingerprints and DNA. Mm -hmm. Later that day, after talking with Daniel and Deb, the police bring Zachary in for an interview. And Zachary said that Christine was supposed to pick him and Darian up around two to go Christmas shopping. And it Sounded like it was like a Toys for Tots kind of thing, like for underprivileged kids. So Zachary and Christine wanted to be able to get Darian a few more gifts that way. Mm-hmm. And when Christine didn't show up, Zachary couldn't get a hold of her. He said he got on a bus with Darian and went without her. He said he got on the bus around three, arrived at the event around four. He said he wasn't there very long, picked up some gifts, left between 4.30 and five and was home by 6.30. And he said that he was home with Darian for the rest of the night. Mm. Mm -hmm. When they ask him about his relationship with Christine, he tells them that she ended things because she wanted him to get it together and says that he missed her a lot, but he was okay with their current situation. He said that Christine had said that there was no way to know what the future holds. And basically each of them should focus on their own growth and taking care of Darian. All sounds good. I'm, I'm skeptical. Oh, one of the detectives speaking to him said that he was a little concerned with how Zachary had said that he loved and missed her and yet didn't seem to be as emotional as you would expect someone to be. But this detective also said that he has learned over the years that people grieve in all different ways and that Zachary answered all of his questions. And so there, that was all that they needed from him at that time. Hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They were able to verify through witnesses and a sign in sheet that Zachary had been at the gift thing that day. And he signed in a little after 3 p.m. Then the police get a call from Christine's best friend, Brandy. And Brandy and Christine had met on the first day of kindergarten and had been best friends ever since. Oh, I have a friend like that. I know. I wish I did. 
I gotta find one. Let me go. I'm gonna. I love, my, I love my bestie from the fifth, from the first day of kindergarten. Mm. I love her too. She's funny. Mm-hmm. So she tells investigators that Christine had been seeing a new man named Derek, and this was the first person she had dated since Zachary, and she was really excited about it. Okay. So when, yeah. When the police try to contact Derek to speak with him, they find out that he hadn't shown up for work that day and he was missing. Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. They also get the autopsy reports back and learn that Christine died by strangulation and the device used was a shoelace and it was still on her, but it oh. was like so embedded that at the time they couldn't tell. It just looked like a ligature mark. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know. And she also had blunt force trauma to the head. Mm -hmm. So police are finally able to track down Derek and he agrees to come in and talk. He says that he was so distraught about Christine's murder that that's why he left. He seems to genuinely care about her and appears to be really upset. So they ask more, more than the other guy, more than the other guy. Yeah. They ask him about the day that Christine was murdered, and he said that he happened to see her that day by happenstance. He said he was walking through St. Paul, and she was driving by, so he, like, flagged her down. He was like, oh, hey, and he said that she rolled down the window, and he was like, this is weird seeing you here, and what are you up to? And she told him that she was on her way to go get her son, and he was like, cool, 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 let's meet up later, and she said okay, and drove off. He said it was a little after 2.15 and she was alone in the car. He said after he saw her, he went to his brother's house where he spent the rest of his evening. And he never heard from her. Hmm. So it's now three days before Christmas and police have received Derek's cell phone records and are combing through it. And they're looking to see if his phone pinged in Minneapolis where the car was found between seven 30 and eight, but his phone records show that he was exactly where he said he was at his brother's house and nowhere near Minneapolis at all that day. So he is ruled out as a suspect. Then they get information about the stolen gold pickup truck. And it turns out it was just some kids that had taken it for a joyride, and it was totally unrelated. Hmm. So, Now they need to try to figure out where their suspect might have gone after abandoning the car. Getting back from Minneapolis requires getting onto Interstate 94. So they start, this is really smart. They start checking 911 records to see if any reports came in of someone walking on the freeway that night. Oh, Uh uh-huh. That is really smart. Uh Uh-huh. And what do you know? Because people do call that in. Because yep. it's dangerous and you're not supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And they did, in fact, get one of those calls. Oh. Yes. The person described was walking east towards St. Paul. And the person fit the description of Zachary Matthews. Sure did. Mm-hmm. So they decided to take a deeper look into our friend Zachary here. I just got Southern. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to the best of us. No. So they get his cell phone records, hoping to see his locations for that day. And according to cell phone records, the information was not consistent with what Zachary had told them about taking the bus home from the Christmas function. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
About 45 minutes after the body was found, Zachary's cell phone is shown going westbound on I-94, directly away from the area where Christine's body was found. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Zachary and Darian are still staying with Christine's parents. I was so... Yeah, that is so... Ugh. No, I just no. As soon as you said that she did, she said that to him. I was like, nope, no, no. So while he's there, they get a search warrant for his apartment, and inside they find a blood smear on a post. It's like a for like a load bearing wall between the kitchen and the dining room. You know, right? Um. And it looked like someone attempted to wipe it off. And it's a weird place for there to be blood unless the post was used to bash someone's head against it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also find blood spots on the mattress and on the bedding. In the hall closet, they find a four-page letter that Zachary had written to Christine and never sent. And they learned that Zachary was extremely distraught about the ending of their relationship, contrary to what he had told them. And they, they also are. Oh, I know. It was like, I love you. I need you. I can't move on. Like, please don't leave. Right. Okay. Yeah. They also find several phone books, which I guess is, you know, like the phone book in the car, which isn't Are we that talking weird. about like to- yellow pages phone books? Yes. Uh-huh. Like- oh, I, this is 2007. So I guess some of they they still kind of existed back then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also in one of Zachary's shoes, he is missing a shoelace. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the blood evidence is sent in for DNA testing, but until they have those results, they knew that they didn't have enough to charge him, and that could take months. So they bring Zachary back in to talk to him, hoping to get a confession. Sure. So they call Deb and Daniel's house. Because they have to get a hold of Zachary. And they, Deb and Daniel answer the phone and both of them like have their ears up to the same cell phone. And Zachary's like 15 feet away from them while the detectives are telling them, we think it was Zachary. And so they have to like do their best to like totally play it cool and like be chill. And they just tell him that, oh, they have some more questions for you. You need to go down there. I oh mean, my God, can you? No, I can't imagine. I can't Fucking imagine. chills. <sighs> so it's Christmas Eve and Zachary goes to the police station to be interviewed. He maintains the story that he originally told them for about three hours. But as they're showing him the evidence that is mounting against him, he finally says that he just found Christine dead in his closet. Mm hmm. The this is the second time that <laughs> just just found her like that. This is like the twelfth time. Just okay. found her like that. I'm constantly just finding people deceased in my closet. Just dead in the closet. Mm-hmm. Whoopsie Daisy. How'd that happen? Yeah. Fuck. Fuck this I- guy. <sighs> Yeah, he said that he was scared, so he put her in her car and drove her to Minneapolis. And when he got there, he just got out of the car. But he didn't light the car on fire. That wasn't him. That was spontaneous combustion, Amber. It was. Mm-hmm. It was. 
Uh-huh. He then walked the 10 miles back to his apartment where he left 22-month-old Darian alone. This whole time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said someone must have come into his apartment and killed Christine and put her in the closet. Wait, I, when? Did, when? Did we just... <laughs> someone just came in, killed her, and shoved her in the closet. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So even though he's refusing to confess, they're able to book him. I mean, because he took a body from his closet and took it to Minneapolis. Based on his, right. Based on his (laughs) bullshit story. He's, he, he has committed some crimes. (laughs) He's still bookable. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So what they believe is when Christine showed up at his house shortly after three to pick him up, he once again professed his love to her. And when she rejected him, he killed her. Then he of got course, on the that's bus. That's exactly what uh-huh. happened. That's exactly yep. what happened. Yeah. Got, got on the bus with Darian, went to the Christmas thing. And when he returned, put her body in the car, drove her to Minneapolis. Right. Yep. So in October 2008, Zachary Matthews is found guilty of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Christine's parents are raising Darian, and her boyfriend at the time, Derek, who she was only with for a couple of weeks, is still very active in Darian's life. Oh, I know. That's so sweet. I know this poor guy. He was like I suspect mean, number one and he was so into her and uh, I can't. I know. <sighs> I just, my... they are, they're never creative about their stories. And it's always like, I got scared. So I did something horrendous to a dead body. That uh, who? <laughs> How many times have we heard this? bullshit so if i ever god forbid come upon a dead body i'm calling 911 i'm not going to be like ooh it's time to dismember i oh like what nobody fucking does that nobody does that nobody does that when they stumble unless, upon a dead body unless you killed them right 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 god oh Fuck my god guy. sister that was awful I'm sorry. sorry. Merry Christmas. Do you have Christmas chaos? (laughs) I do. I'm sorry. It's, it's not, it's not going to get better. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Double Debbie downer. Mm, Triple day. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to head back to the early 20th century and the labor fight in America. Hmm. Okay. Okay. This time we're going to Michigan, not far from Minnesota. Oh boy. In Midwesterners. Yep. Yep. We're going to Copper Country in Northwest Michigan's Kawina Peninsula, which is a site of tons of rich copper deposits. So in the early to mid 1800s, the copper deposits in Michigan were discovered by the colonizers, the French and the British, which turned into an official exploration and a report about it that made its way back to Great Britain, particularly the area in Great Britain known as Cornwall, where copper was mined as well. 
The report literally said the copper in the Kawina Peninsula of Michigan was richer and more easily reduced than the copper being mined in Cornwall. And so a copper rush began, bringing in a wave of settlers in the area looking to get their hands on that copper and make a killing. Mm -hmm. So over the next five or six decades, a copper mining industry was established and this area in Michigan became the first major copper mining region in the U.S. Okay. Most of the early successful mines were operated by Cornish miners who came over from Cornwall. The Cornwall mines were failing, and the miners were traveling to newer mining regions around the world. But that meant that they brought with them a system of mine operations based on contracts. So... In this system, miners formed working groups. Normally, this was like family members, and they contracted with mine operators to do specific jobs in the mining process. And they were paid by the cubic fathom of mined rock they extracted. I suppose a fathom is a measurement. I don't, don't ask me how much a fathom is. <laughs> I can't this even fathom what that is. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> this is based on the rates set in their contracts, right? This okay. is how they get paid. So, but the miners that pulled the rock out of the mine is only one part of the job, right? Then there are what they call trammers and their job is to take that rock and load it up into a tram, like a tram car that mm -hmm. pulled the rock out of the mine and trammers were not paid on a contract and they were basically considered a lower class worker than the rock extractors. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. The process traditionally of operating these mines in the Cornish way was with a three man team drilling the mines. But this was a very labor intensive process with these three men. One man would hold a steel drill while two other men took turns hitting the drill with sledgehammers. Jeez. Right. Around the 1870s, mines started looking for more efficient systems within the mines. And so they moved to a two-man drill where a mechanical drill operated with compressed air was used. Mm -hmm. This, of course, required one less man to operate, thereby saving on the cost of drilling labor. By the 19-teens, Mines started replacing the two-man drill system with the one-man drill, but this broke apart the whole historical family mining teams and left some miners unemployed and bringing in less income to a family. Right. It was also much more dangerous since the one-man drill system meant these miners were operating alone. Any accidents that happened were likely to go undiscovered until many hours later where the two or three man systems meant there was always someone nearby to help if an accident did happen. In fact, the one man drill was known as the widow maker. Oh my God. I think I've heard that before. It's, isn't it, is it still technically the most dangerous job in the world? Mining? I mean, it's one of them. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. Oh God, no. It's right up so there with scary. like, like commercial fishing in the fucking, you know, off mm -hmm. the coast of Alaska or something. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. So also by this time in the early 19 teens, miners usually worked 10 to 12 hour shifts and had one day off per week. 
And while the old contract system remained, most of the mines manipulated the contracts so that all the miners basically made the same amount per month and subtracting from them the expenses for candles or lamps, the steel used in the drills and other materials required for mining. And extracted course, from their pay. Mm-hmm. And there, of course, was also child labor going on in the Michigan mines. Mm-hmm. And then there were the mining towns themselves that looked and operated just like the company towns that we've covered on the pod before. Mm-hmm. The early mines in the Kawina wilderness were basically in the middle of nowhere. There weren't any towns close by to keep the towns supplied. And so the mines provided all the services themselves. Mm-hmm. Most of the mines provided housing and schools along with doctors, hospitals, and even constructed the roads. But the thing is... Housing was assigned based on a bias toward the, quote, skilled laborers, which trammers were not included in, as well as bias towards men with families as opposed to the single men. And most of the houses were also given to favored certain ethnic groups, typically the non-immigrants and Cornish men, like the white people. Of course. But along with being... Given these things, miners were expected to follow a code of conduct, meaning that if they fought too much or drank too much or acted in any way that the mining companies deemed improper, they could be fired at any time. And as we know, getting fired from a company that owns the town means that you also instantly lose your housing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, Don't shit where you eat. Don't shit where you eat. <laughs> oh, you know that there's been talk of like bringing back, like there's some companies talking about, you know, building company towns acting like this is brand new and it's never been done before in well, the United didn't, States. Didn't Microsoft do something sort of like that? I feel like I saw a news article not that long ago about some corporation doing this shit. That's not too dissimilar from like what uh, my friend Allison does as an apartment manager, like part of her wage is her free, free, it's not free apartment. Right. But it's sure. like she, she quits her job and she doesn't have a home. That's right. I, yeah. No, that's, whew, you got to be right. ready to do a lot of big moves at once. Yes. That's scary. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And considering that most states are at will states, they can fire you at any time for any reason they want to. That is not, like housing security. No, no. Mm-mm. Ugh. So meanwhile, in the Western United States and British Columbia and Canada, the Western Federation of Miners was a labor union that had gained a reputation of militancy in the mines in those regions, having been successful in organizing hard rock miners and smelter workers who often had actual battles with both mine owners and government authorities. Mm hmm. What's a smelter? Smelting is the the melting down, I think. Mm. It's when you melt Mm. the thing down. So it's going to be like the, probably like the extraction of the copper from the rock. Okay. Probably. Yeah. And we've heard these stories before. A lot of similar confrontations as the coal miners in Appalachia went through in the lead up to the Battle of Blair Mountain. Mm hmm. Yep. A lot of that was going down. And the WFM was successful in securing higher wages for their members. And so it was that the miners in Michigan's copper country rallied together to unionize. (laughs) In the years leading up to 1912, there had been several wildcat strikes. And a wildcat strike is basically like, we're not in a union, but we're striking. 
And okay. But they had only been like at individual minds, like a mind here and then a mind there, right? Like right. basically it was just like a group of miners at a mine were like, fuck this and went on strike, even though they didn't technically belong to a union. Gotcha. Okay. And they only involved like one group of workers, usually the trammers who were paid less than the miners for their physically intensive work, right? Mm-hmm. And of course the mine owners hated the unions. But Western Federation of Miners came in and organized in Copper Country anyway. Good. Mm-hmm. The main issues were wages, hours, and the one-man drill. That They were demanding shorter days, higher wages, and the return to the two-man drill system. All the newly formed chapters of the WFM in Kawina voted to strike on July 23rd, 1913. They called this strike as local chapters without the support of the national WF organization, which had just finished major strikes in the Western mines. And they had very little left in their strike fund at the time. So they basically were like, we're organized, we're unionized now we're striking. And the WFM wasn't technically like there with them saying, yep, we're going to do it. But the, cause they had just finished striking big time in the West and right. they didn't have a big strike fund ready to support another strike. Mm-hmm. But because unions are fucking awesome, the WFM began collecting donations and fees from its members to support the Copper Country strikers. Mm-hmm. As soon as the strike in Copper Country started, almost all the mines in the area shut down. Mobs of strikers blocked access to mines and held daily parades to boost morale and show their strength. And just as with the coal miner strikes in West Virginia, The same tactics were pulled in Michigan to shut down the copper mine strikes. The mine owners got together and they asked the governor of Michigan to bring in the National Guard troops, which he did. And that led to many confrontations, some of them violent and deadly, between the troops and the striking miners. Jesus Christ. Is this really necessary to bring in the National Guard? This is America. Yes, it is. My God. This is what happens when the lower classes try to stand up for themselves. Mm -hmm. The mines pulled together enough miners who were willing to tear up their union membership cards and imported workers from other states and even other countries to be operational by August of 1913, even though they were not operating at full steam. Regardless, as the strike wore on, the striking miners were struggling to get by. The WFM was running out of money fast and unable to support the strikers and their families very much. And as a result, a good number of the families actually left the area completely looking for work in other areas with growing industrial centers like Detroit and Chicago. Hmm. By early December of 1913, the Copper Country strike had been going on for almost five months and was weakening significantly. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2013, the Women's Auxiliary of the Western Federation of Miners put together a Christmas party for strikers and their families. Headed up by Annie Klemek, who was a union leader and a wife to one of the protesting miners, she got the union and many local people in the area to donate gifts for the children and funds for the party supplies. She gathered hats and mittens and toys and fruit and candy for the kids, knowing that was the only way most of them would get anything for Christmas. Mm. God bless these ladies. Mm -hmm. The party was held in the upstairs ballroom of the Italian Hall, which was a building in 
Calumet, Michigan, owned by a mutual benefit society for Italians. The party had high turnout. Hundreds of families attended, including a bunch of the children of the striking miners. They were all packed into the ballroom and having a proper Christmas party. An estimated total of around 700 people showed up. Uh-oh. At some point during the party, late in the afternoon, an unknown man, someone no one in the hall recognized, walked in and yelled, fire. Fuck this guy. This, of course, caused a panic, and everyone at the party started running for the only exit that they knew about, which was one steep and narrow staircase down to the first floor. Mm. There was one poorly marked fire escape on one side of the building and ladders down the back of the building that could only be reached by climbing through the windows, but it's clear that no one in attendance knew about these alternative exits, and everyone was trying to get down the stairs. God, I just did. uh, Sorry, I just did this training at work about like, this is common, like human thought process every time and looking at those stupid like emergency routes and nobody does that. Nobody does it, but it will happen every single time that there's all these other exits, but people only know the way that they came in. And then you well, get, remember like, we were talking about this during the MGM grand fire, right? Mm-hmm. When how all the hotels now have that map and you're like, I don't even look at it. I can't read it. Yeah. People don't look <laughs> at it. Yeah. Fuck. Right. But that's what will happen. Then you bottleneck and you get a stampede and yep. Is that what's happening here? Mm, okay. Yep. So what happened was all these people jammed into the stairwell and ended up piled on top of each other, unable to get mm-hmm. out. It is widely believed, although it cannot ever really be confirmed, that someone or someones held the door shut at the bottom of the stairs, preventing anyone from getting through the door and contributing to the bottleneck effect. One resident of Calumet, Al Harvey, along with his friend Joe Cadell, who was the chief of police in Calumet, heard the cries coming from the hall a few blocks away and ran to help. Al described the scene like this. The hallway was jammed clean from the top to the bottom. There they were jammed in there, one on top of the other. I have never seen anything like it. And these men, along with others, literally dug the party goers out of the mess that had accumulated at the bottom of the stairs. The stampede would take the lives of somewhere between 73 and 80 people. The numbers were never fully confirmed and there were conflicting reports on the total. At least 59 of the victims were children. Oh no. Was there even a fire? No. Okay. What the fuck? Kalumet was devastated by this tragedy. I found a website full of historical pictures from the time. I'm going to include the link in my, in the notes. It said that the funeral procession drew thousands stretching from the town all the way to the cemetery, two miles away. Oh, in the aftermath of this tragedy, all kinds of narratives would be pushed. One of the narratives was that the doors at the bottom of the stairs opened inward and that when people got to the bottom and others were pushing against them, the doors were prevented from being open. But all the photos of the doors suggest a double set of doors with both doors opening outward. Mm -hmm. Everyone on the side of the striking miners and their families believed that it was men from Citizens Alliance that had stood at the doors and held them shut and that it was one of those men that yelled fire in the first place. Citizens Alliance was an anti-strike group who supported mine owners and bosses. Mm Mm-hmm. 
They, along with men from Waddell Mayon Detective Agency, were hired and utilized by the mine owners to basically harass and bully striking miners. What the chaos fuck? kids might remember the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency who had mm-hmm. quite the presence in West Virginia during the striking of the coal miners and the kind of violence those men brought to bear in order to intimidate and control the coal miners. <laughs> the Waddell Mayan Detective Agency was the exact same kind of group. The kind of group that kills children on Christmas Eve? That's right. Okay, cool. In support of business owners, Amber, business owners. So while in the ensuing investigations into the tragedy, no one from the Citizens Alliance or Waddell Mann were charged, plenty of people laid the blame at their feet. The coroner's inquest questioned non-English speakers in English and forced them to answer in English, and most witnesses were not asked follow-up questions. And a bunch of the people called to testify didn't actually see what happened It sounds like the strikers and their families were mostly immigrants that didn't speak English and they were upsetting the business class because they were striking and ultimately no one would take any blame for this massacre, as it would later be referred to when famed folk singer Woody Guthrie wrote a song about it. Oh. It's called 1913 Massacre. Mm. In early 1914, a subcommittee of the U.S. House of Reps came to Copper Country to investigate the strike, and they took sworn testimony from witnesses. Twenty of them testified under oath with interpreters, and eight of them swore that the man who yelled fire was wearing a button on his coat for Citizens Alliance. God damn it. (sighs) The common sentiment in the community was that Citizens Alliance was somehow to blame. Yeah. This is where it gets a relief committee made up of Alliance members collected $25,000 to help the families affected. Oh, did they? They did. Hmm. The families refused their money. Oh, good for them. (laughs) Telling them that the Western Federation of Miners was going to help them. Thank you very much. Were the Western Federation of Miners like, um, cutie, we're out of money. (laughs) Remember we told you? (laughs) Well, the Alliance members uh, who served on that relief committee supposedly found out that the president of the WFM had told the families to refuse those funds. Oh, good. Good. good, So they visited the WFM president at his hotel in Hancock. The Alliance did. Citizens Alliance. They visited him at his hotel in Hancock. Shot and kidnapped him. Oh, that fucking took a dark turn. Put him on a train with instructions to leave Michigan and never come back. They they, they kidnapped a union president and put him on a train and said, get the fuck out of here. Whoa. So he got medical attention in Chicago, held a press conference and showed his gunshot wound while promising to return to Michigan to continue the work of the union. The building, the Italian Hall, was demolished in October of 1984 with only the archway being saved, which became a state historical marker in 1987. The site is now a park maintained by the Kawina National Historic Park. Every year on the anniversary, Christmas Eve, the Kalumet Rotary Club lights a luminary for each person who died in the hall. Hmm. 
And on the archway, the last piece of the building that still stands is a plaque provided by the AFL-CIO, which is the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is a collection of unions. And the plaque says, mourn the dead, fight for the living. Hmm. Hmm. And that is the Italian hall disaster. That was terrible. I'm so sorry, sister. Are you though? Um, I mean, sort of, except that you know how much I love, like, I don't love this. Obviously, this is horrible. But what mm -hmm. I love about it is the spirit of these people fighting for their labor rights and how, like, the collective can make a difference when they stand mm -hmm. together. Agreed. Agreed. And, like, the, the labor fights... I don't, I, there's something that about the, the labor fights of the early 20th century, especially that really like it touches a spot in me. I just, I can, I can never get enough of it. I can never get yeah. enough of it. Yeah. It's important to remember. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, people don't really think about it that much. You know, we, we take a lot of like our standard kind of operating procedure around how we work as like, we take it for granted. Right. But mm -hmm. like these people literally died. And in these battles where people died, like they were dying because they were fighting for better wages and like a 40 hour fucking work week and to not have kids working in these places. And right. Like these things, like people literally died to get us mm -hmm. to a place where like that shit isn't supposed to happen. Right. We're supposed to be paid equitably and our time like valued and, you know, like our working conditions safe and like all that stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fuck sister. So, that um, was a good one. You know, thank you, sister. Merry Christmas chaos kids. Mm -hmm. Or happy we holidays if, or, if you're, whatever. or whatever. If you're celebrating, maybe, maybe Santa's coming tonight. If you're listening the day that this comes out, mm -hmm. um, if not, I hope you're enjoying some holiday time and rest and family. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being a part of our family. Yes. Wow. Um, all the things, right? All the things, all the things are happening. Um, go check them all out. Twitter, Insta, Facebook, you know, the ticky talk, the ticky talky. You know, we just, uh, when you, by the time you hear this, we will be like a week and a half out from another bonus episode for the month of December will have dropped. And if you aren't a member of the chaos kids club, you should get on over to patreon.com backslash crime, wine and chaos and sign up. It's five bucks a month. Five bucks a month gets you, uh, gets you a, an extra episode every month. And, oh, we're going to have a virtual wine night, which I, I promise we're doing that by the time you hear this. Chaos Kids Club members, you will have already received communication from us about, about that. We're looking forward to seeing your faces. And um, we have a new Chaos Kid Club member. We have oh, we, Eliz we have Elizabeth, who is now part of the club. Be Hi, like Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth. Hi. We're so glad to have you. We're so glad you're Can't here. Can't wait to meet you. We're so glad you're here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there was one like, oh, you guys go rate us, rate us on your app, wherever you're listening. And if you're listening on an Apple or you have an Apple product, even if you're using a different app, go into the podcast app for Apple, 
and write us a little review. Tell people why we're awesome and why you listen. Get it, get us some, give us some love. That'll get, you know what? That's what I want for Christmas chaos kids. That's what I want for Christmas this year. I want a written review about why you love us. Same Z's. Same Z's. Right? Yeah. That's all I want for Christmas. Same Z's. Sister, I love you. I love you. That was so, so fucking, fucking chaotic. chaotic. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Artwork by Joshua M. Davis. Music by Paul Abner. If you would like to support the show, you can visit our Patreon page at Crime, Wine, and Chaos forward slash Patreon. Cheers. We've heard these stories before. Huh? What are smelter workers?